0: In this passage that Russell read to us, there's a tension. On the one hand, Christians are supposed to be holy. We heard about this last week in the sermon that Dan preached on the law. On the other hand, we're supposed to interact with our culture for its good. We heard this two weeks ago. In the sermon that CJ preached on our neighbors. Now this is a tension. It's actually right there in the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning of the Bible, the very first line we see God made everything. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's a merasmus. It's a poetic technique where you pick terms of extreme as a way of saying all. So I love my wife day and night means I love her all the time. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth means he made everything that exists. And then a couple, of verses, a couple of chapters later, humans sinned, and every single thing God made is broken. This is a tension. All of reality created by God good, and yet not a single square inch of reality that has not been corrupted. So how do we live in the midst of our culture for the glory of God through holiness, but also for his glory by entering into our culture and seeking to exist for the good of the city? And this tension is right there. If you picked it up what, what Russell was reading, honor one another, love God, be holy, be priest, honor the emperor, honor the institutions. And so there's this clash. In fact, first Peter, I think is the most profound book in the Bible on how Christians live in the midst of a culture And how we respond to culture. It's very complicated. Sometimes we stand against culture. Sometimes we embrace culture. Sometimes we embrace it on contingencies. We bring it in but transform it. So I'm going to talk this morning about how do we navigate this. Now if you notice the scripture passages change from what we read. Late in the week I realized our college students, the most of them would be gone on a retreat. And so last spring CJ invited me to speak to the students on this very subject and I've been looking for a day to talk to you about that and they're gone so they most of them don't have to hear a sermon twice but some of them are still here and they will apparently God just thought they didn't listen the first time and so in his providence he's giving them another chance now How do we navigate this tension of being holy, but at the same time living for the good of our city by engaging with our community? The way we navigate this is primarily given to us by two doctrines in Scripture. There are two doctrines that stand in kind of tension to one another that give us the tools so that we can have wisdom as we seek to engage our culture as holy priests. Now, the first doctrine, if you, have a, if you have your Bible, turn with me to this passage that um, Grace read to us. Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28, starting in verse 23. Uh, give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put it wheat and rows and barley in its proper place? And he mirrors the border for the farmer is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Now, part of what we're seeing here is what Dan talked about last week, that the law of God is not this alien abstract thing imposed on us. It is consistent with the way in which God created reality. We're used to thinking of law in terms of physics, the law of gravity. But the Bible also talks about the law of morality. And just like the law of gravity is consistent with the way God made our universe, the morality God gives us is consistent with the grain of the universe. In other words, there's not only a goodness to creation, there is a givenness to creation. And the farmer taps into that if he wants to farm well right? It's proper place. You don't open the ground and then leave it open. You put on a cover crop. We know that when we do this, farming works better. What we're seeing here, Isaiah is showing us that anyone who becomes a skillful farmer or excels in agricultural science has actually learned from God. Now, he might have thought it was the co-op teaching him, But God is not afraid of indirect means to teach his will. Now, whether that person knows that God is his teacher or not, whether that person even believes that God is his teacher or not, it is God that is the source of that knowledge. Now, listen to another passage. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Exodus chapter 31, starting in verse 1. Um, Like paintings, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Become so self conscious of that now that Aaron picks on it like a scab. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, now this is a shout out to the artist See, I have called by name. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, in carving wood, to work in every craft. Here we see that not only is the skill of farming a gift from God, whether you know it's coming for God or not, whether you think it's from the co-op or not, that the skill of art comes from God whether it came from your mentor or your art program at school when you learn that God's spirit is what enables artists to do art well now another fascinating way this same principle comes up in scripture Isaiah chapter 45 if you want to turn there Isaiah 45 verse 1 a very interesting passage. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. Normally, those of you who read the Bible frequently, who is the anointed of God? Some righteous person, some holy person, right? David, Jesus. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, comma, Cyrus. That's the king of Persia. Have you seen 300? <laughs> right? This is not what we're used to thinking of as the Lord's anointed. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, a pagan, wicked king, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So God anointed with his spirit, not only the farmer, not only the artist, but here a pagan, wicked, violent king, Cyrus, King of Persia. He anointed him and chose him for world leadership. Now what we're seeing is the biblical teaching that every advancement in learning, every good work of art, every scientific discovery is an act of God's grace. It's God opening the book of his creation and revealing not only its goodness but its givenness revealing his truth. What appears to be a discovery to the scientist or the psychologist or the farmer or the engineer is actually God teaching that person. Any moment of true insight into the world, whether it's political or philosophical or scientific or artistic, any moment of true insight into the world comes from God, no matter It's indirect route. No matter if the person knows that it comes from God or not. And no matter if the person has the true insight is a Christian or not. When it comes to navigating culture as a Christian, it's critical to have this biblical insight firmly in your mind. Because there are two important implications that flow out of this teaching. Number one, James chapter 1 verse 17. Every good gift is from God. All truth is God's truth. All beauty is God's beauty. All justice is God's justice. All goodness is God's goodness. Whenever you encounter the true, something that is true or beautiful or good or just, no matter if you're encountering it in somebody who's a Christian or not, if you encounter something that has within it goodness or truth or beauty, God is the source of that truth, that beauty, that goodness, that justice. All good art is of God. Everything good in a piece of music, everything well done in a movie, all skillful farming, all true scientific discoveries, every good medical and technological breakthrough, all of these things are only from God and from no other source. The genuine joy and the good friendships that exist in fraternities, that's from God, even though it's mixed up. With debauchery. Everything good in that fraternity is from God. The genuine joy and the good friendships that exist in sororities, the creativity and the technological excellence of video games is from God. Every good and true and beautiful thing comes from God. Now, that's the first implication. Now, the second implication takes us even further down this road. Listen to the passage of scripture um, from 2 Corinthians. Listen to this 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Now, in this verse, we are called not only to understand that all truth is God's truth and all beauty is God's beauty and all justice is God's justice and all goodness is God's goodness. Here we are called, commanded to appreciate and honor and value truth and beauty and justice and goodness, no matter where it shows up. We can't do anything against the truth. That should be our attitude as Christians. No matter where the truth is, no matter where goodness or beauty or insight is, we cannot stand against it. In this verse, we're called to appreciate it and honor it and value it. We should never reject or dishonor anything that comes from God. Because to do this, to reject and dishonor something that comes from God, is to reject and dishonor the God who gives that gift. Now, this is a big deal. Let's just unpack it for a minute. In the creation account of Genesis 1, God creates the living things to swim in the waters. And he creates birds to fly in the skies. And then when he's finished, he looks at the fish. He looks at the birds. He looks at the plants like Anita looks at bromeliads. And he says what? He saw it was good. In other words, he enjoyed its beauty. He beheld it. He saw it like a mother sees her infant the goodness the joy the greatness now part of what this means is that god is delighted in his creatures just like a fish tank you know what a fish tank is it's us trying to be like god it's us trying to take a, a just a snapshot of the ocean and bring it into our homes so that we can see that it, can you imagine god does that all day every day with every square inch of our ocean it's all a fish tank to him. He loves it. He he enjoys it. He sees its goodness. He takes pleasure in seeing the eagle take flight. Psalm 104 verse 31 tells us that the Lord rejoices in all He has made. He is gratified by a glowing sunset set and by ocean waves breaking on a rocky coastline. Joy fills the Lord when the cherry tree is in blossom. The Lord delights in the speed of a leopard in the chase. But it's not just the non-human creation. God takes delight in the wit of John Stewart. And the putting ability of Tiger Woods. And the well-crafted narrative paragraph of Cormac McCarthy. Whether these people are Christians or not, it doesn't matter on this level. When an unbelieving poet makes use of an apt metaphor. Or when a foul-mouthed Major, Leaguer outfield, Major League outfielder leaps in the air and makes a stunning catch. God enjoys that. He sees its goodness. It's true, there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are only two kinds of people, Christians and non-Christians. But that does not mean that a Christian should not engage in that part of the world that comes under the, it doesn't mean that a Christian should only engage in the part of the world that comes under the umbrella of Christianity. Like only listening to Christian music or only watching Christian movies or only buying Christian art. God has put his gifts in the hands of believers and unbelievers alike. That's what the comment about Cyrus means. That's what the comment about the artist means. That's what the comment about the farmer means. The spirit of God is at work within the church and outside of the church. He's he's at work throughout this world among believers and unbelievers, giving people wisdom and courage and creativity and insight. In the words of John Calvin, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some spark of the beauty and glory of God. Now, students, why are you going to school? This is a fundamental reason. For elementary and junior high school and high school and college. Your pursuit of learning is your pursuit of a relationship with the creator who owns all knowledge and all truth and all goodness and all beauty. We must engage with culture in order to gain good and true and beautiful and just insights that come from believers and unbelievers. And wherever we find them, we must honor them. Receive them, praise them, accept them. We must appreciate truth and delight in beauty and honor goodness and love justice and enjoy God's gifts wherever they are. It is wrong to perceive the world as the domain of the devil. And the body as the source of temptation and the culture as the cause of worldliness and education as the root of error. When we do this, what happens is we end up dismissing these realms, culture, the world, our body. We dismiss them as undeserving of our time and our interest and our attention and instead we focus on kingdom work and higher callings and heavenly perspectives and that's a tragedy. So that's one teaching of scripture. It's called the doctrine of common grace. He shines in all that's fair wherever we find it but you have to be careful. You can be naive and foolish about these issues. You see, there's another teaching in Scripture that sits in balance to that. That sits in tension with that. That's called the doctrine of common grace. This other teaching is called the antithesis. And we've got to hold the antithesis in tension with the doctrine of common grace. If we don't, we will, we will make serious and dangerous mistakes in the way that we engage with our culture. Now, if you have a Bible, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage. Um, Paul's navigating some pretty intense and complicated issues with the group of Christians who live in Corinth. But for the sake of what we're talking about this morning, what you need to see is that there is a battle in our culture, in our world. There is a spiritual warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness between God and Satan. This is a spiritual conflict that pervades everything. Just like God's goodness is everywhere, this conflict pervades everything. It cuts right across all of life. Now, Galatians chapter 5 verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. There is a fundamental spiritual opposition between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Now, just like the doctrine of common grace has two implications that we need this doctrine has two implications that we need to figure out how to be in the world but not of the world first the antithesis knows no territorial boundaries this is a battle between regimes not between realms it's not America is good England is bad there is there are no realms that are good And spheres of society and locations and realms that are bad. This is a battle between regimes and it runs through every department of life and culture. This is a battle between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. And the battle line cuts right through everything. Now why is that important? Well it's especially important for those of you that were raised like me. See I was raised with a very clear sense of right and wrong. I was raised, my parents and my church taught me the difference between holiness and worldliness. And so I had this deep sensitivity to the dangers that are in secular music and alcohol and rated R movies. And I was given not only a sense of right and wrong, I was also given the courage to stand against the wrong. I was given the conviction to resist compromise and to pursue purity. But in all of that emphasis on boundaries, it is possible to grow confused. And to think that Christians are here and non-Christians are out there. And the danger is out there and the safety is in here. So don't, don't go out there where they are. Don't go into those rounds that are non-Christian. Stay in your private schools. Stay in your home schools. Stay in your Christian music parks. I mean, we have lots of ways that, that, that are on the one hand good, but they can produce this side effect where we think that the kingdom of God is a location and the safety is a location. But the doctrine of the antithesis, it exposes... This idea for what it is Just because you're listening to Christian music Doesn't mean you're safe from the kingdom of darkness Just because you're in a very good Christian private school Does not mean you're safe from the kingdom of darkness There is no safe place There is no pure place You want to retreat from society in, in, In your opposition to its darkness Guess what? You carry its darkness with you You've been watching The Walking Dead We've all got it Right? We're all exposed. We've all got this thing. Now, I'm not advocating you watch it, but. (laughs) Just because you live in a house with other Christians, just because it's all IV students in the house, doesn't mean that they're safe from temptation. The antithesis, the battle between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness cuts right through our personal lives. It cuts right through our church. It cuts right through Anglicanism and right through Presbyterianism and right through the Mennonite world and right through Christian music. It cuts right through all of us. It's in conservative churches. It's in liberal churches. It is everywhere. The battle between God's kingdom and and the kingdom of darkness knows no territorial boundaries. There is no DMZ. There is no safe place. So if you combine my upbringing with an inadequate sense of common grace, notice what it produces. It can result in a fundamentalist, escapist Christianity. The kind of Christian who does not honor the good that is in the music of the world. And the kind of Christian who doesn't know the difference between Rembrandt's nude painting of his wife and pornography. The kind of Christian that does not recognize the the difference between good art and bad art and good technology and bad technology. The movies just go, the list just goes on and on. It's it's foolish to carve up the world into Christian domains and non-Christian domains if you do not understand common grace and a common spiritual conflict. So that's the first way the antithesis helps us out. It challenges the fundamentalist. It helps people like me who were taught to focus primarily on purity and holiness as an act of separation from the world. The second way in which the antithesis helps is it challenges the others. The liberal. It challenges the person who approaches all of culture as if it's safe. The person who thinks they can listen to anything and watch anything, and because they're a Christian, it's okay. You see, the antithesis helps this person re- remember that the stakes are high. There is a warfare. Warfare. Life and death is on the line. This is serious stuff. 1 Corinthians 3.20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. There is futility in our world. There is badness. When you fail to see the issues clearly and you exploit the idea of Christian freedom and you watch things and listen to things and and wear certain fashions as if they are neutral, then you have a good grasp of common grace. But when it comes to the antithesis, you are naive, you are deceiving yourself, and you're in danger. That's why 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, let no one deceive themselves. You can deceive yourself with this notion of freedom and common grace. Please don't underestimate the power of the kingdom of darkness. The thoughts of the wise are futile and it will lead to death. There is a real danger in your focus like I was raised on purity and holiness. But there's also a real danger in the naivety that says culture good, the church corrupt. Now, The stakes are high. So these two biblical teachings, the antithesis and the common grace, they sit in tension with one another. And on the one hand, we should enjoy and delight in every good gift of God, wherever it shows up. And on the other hand, we must not be foolish. There's a real spiritual battle and the stakes could not be higher. Now, how how does this tension enable us to interact with our culture? Well, what this tension does is it gives us three ways of handling culture. When it comes to music and movies and education and video games and drugs and alcohol and sex, when it comes to being in a fraternity or sorority or not, it helps us to see that there are really multiple options. There is no one way of relating to culture because culture is no one thing. We can do one, we've got three options. Here they are we can adopt, we can adapt, and we can reject. This tension produces three options. Adopt culture, adapt culture, reject culture. There's some things in our culture that you can adopt. They are good as they are. And it is good to enjoy them. Outside of the church, there's music and there are movies and there, there is dancing. There are ways of doing business and ways of handling your money. And there are parties and there are traditions that you can dive right into and embrace them and celebrate them and accept them as they are. But there are some dance moves and some ways of celebrating and some traditions and some business plans and some ways of using alcohol that you can't just adopt. You have to adapt. You have to take them and transform them and tweak them and shift them. There's a corruption that has occurred and you've got to transform it. And finally, there are some movies and some music and some video games and some parties and some traditions and some ways of doing business that you must simply reject. Have nothing to do with it. Now, two important points about this. When you, re- when you refuse to engage with certain aspects of our culture, whether it's in farming or in art. Or in the way you raise your family. Or the way you spend your money. Or the way you, you spend your weekend. When we, when we reject. When we refuse to engage in certain ways. You may look like the biggest dork in the world. And your family might tell you that. And your neighbors might act like you're less than intelligent. And that's okay. In fact, we need to remember that suffering is part of being a follower of Jesus. And the gospel often provokes opposition and ridicule. And everything a Christian is and does, including your participation with culture, is part of your comprehensive witness of Christ in our world today. Loyalty to Christ will lead you into being marginalized, into being picked on, into being thought of (gasps) ignorant, unenlightened. As soon as we lose our sight of the antithesis, our Christian witness is in danger of losing authenticity and depth and power. Now, sometimes we need to reject certain actions or activities, not because they are totally bad, but because you can't handle them. So I think, for example, of the alcoholic needs to not drink alcohol, not because alcohol is bad, but because of the corruption that has occurred in them, they no longer have the benefit and the privilege of this good gift from God. I'm thinking about the students that are dating. And because one of them has been so sexually active, they can no longer cuddle in holy ways because one of them is so broken they can't stop. And so, so maybe the guy or the girl needs to look at his boyfriend or girl or she needs to, or he needs to look at his girlfriend and say, you know what, because of my brokenness, like the alcoholic, I can't do some things with you that are on this side of holiness and on this side of purity because I'm so broken. See, see this, this tension in these three options, they're complex and the way they play out depends on the given situation. Now, so there are three options, adopt, adapt, and reject. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you how this works with two examples. Just to show you how this works out. Let's talk first about fashion, fashion and style. Is beauty a bad thing? No. I mean, our God cannot bring himself to make two trees the same way, right? Beauty is clearly something of God. Look at this world our father made. Now, is beautiful clothing bad? No. No more than a beautiful forest is bad. Is spending your money on beautiful things bad? No. God was extravagant. We are still only just now discovering some of the beauties on the microscopic level that God has carved into this world. And some of the beauties on the macroscopic level that we still are not able to see. God does not mind extravagance. Frugalness is not next to godliness. In some situations it is. But if it's next to godliness, then God's not godly because there are some unfrugal things he made. Right? I mean, there are things in this universe that no one can see their beauty but him. And he wasted his power on it. Now, how do we navigate this? I would say that fashion is a response to grace. That's the bottom line. Good style is a response to grace. Fashion is one of those areas in life where we must honor and take satisfaction and delight in all that is true and good and beautiful. There was a time where the church produced the greatest musicians and the greatest painters in its culture. There was a time when the greatest clothing fashions were coming out of the church. The fact that that's not the case anymore is a problem if we claim to worship a God of beauty. But, like I said at the very beginning, there is nothing that God has created that we've not corrupted. So, like in every area of our life, in the world of fashion, there's a fundamental spiritual opposition between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Now, where do we see this corruption, this darkness in the world of fashion today? Well, it shows up in a lot of different ways, it shows up in vanity. Just because somebody's wearing beautiful clothes doesn't mean they're vain. See, some of us were raised so anti-extravagance, so anti-clothing beauty that we think everybody who dresses fashionable is vain. That is not true. There are a lot of people that do, and the vanity is the sin. It shows up in other ways. Bad taste is a result of darkness. The Bible says to him, I'm not joking, the Bible says we should imitate God. And look, beauty is a moral category just like truth is. If I'm raising my children to be more godly, that means they know they can tell the truth better this year than last year. It also means they can tell the difference between Degas and Kincaid better this year than last year. Beauty is a moral category. It also shows up in the fashion industry in the area of financial, in, in financial exploitation. The list goes on and on. But let's deal particularly with the issue of modesty. Many of today's fashions, especially for women, are immodest. Now, I'm not saying that sexuality should be removed from fashion. I'm not saying that you should go for the most shapeless, drab, contour-disguising sack that the chain store has to offer. (laughs) God created us as sexual beings. And to deny our sexuality is to reduce our God-given personhood. However... No matter how cold it is on a Thursday and Friday night, Port Republic Road is filled with the sad sight of people who have been reduced through their fashion to being nothing more than a walking erogenous zone. So see, the problem there is the reduction of the female to sex. Also this, in every culture, immodesty is is connected to immorality and immodesty is culturally dependent missionary goes to africa tells the king of the tribe you've got to tell your women to wear dress, to wear shirts and to cover up their chest and the king of the tribe says my women will not dress like prostitutes in that culture this particular famous missionary instance covering the chest was what the prostitute did it was immodest every culture's sense of modesty is different the key is immodesty is always related to immorality there is a certain sense in which women in Rome do as Rome does. It's complicated. But we have to be careful not to foist our sense of modesty on other cultures. There are standards we've got to deal with. So there are fashions that we need to adopt. They're good. They are good and creative and beautiful and unique. And there are some we should adapt. And there are some we just should flat out reject. When it comes to fashion, we need to be creative and critical. And we've got to bear in mind that the culture we live in, where we are, who we are, all of this plays into how we should react. We have to be diligent to uncover the goodness and the grace in fashion and at the same time be diligent to discern the very real battle that is at work in the fashion industry. One more, dancing. Now this one is easier. Dancing's a good gift from God. Bodily movement is clearly part of God's good gift. So it's rhythm and music and social interaction. And God gave us the good gift of bringing these things together for the purpose of celebration and enjoyment. We know from many biblical references to dancing that dancing is a beautiful, healthy, enjoyable, exhilarating experience. And every good gift from God should be received and you should not stand against it. But there is little, if anything, that can, humankind cannot corrupt, and dance is certainly a part of that. Modern social dancing is profoundly broken. I'm not suggesting that we need to take, for example, the sexual element out of dancing entirely. That's not the case. Any more than the element of sexuality is evil in clothing or in sports or drama. But in many dance parties and dance moves, the element of sexuality so dominates. In that situation, dance becomes some sort of foreplay. And then when you add in provocative dress, suggestive music and lyrics, hypnotic lighting and liquor or drugs... Dancing can devolve into an act of paganism that is evil. Now, some people are foolish and naive about the nature of their freedom. And some people are foolish and naive about the nature of their goodness. And what we've got to learn how to do is how to recognize God's goodness and God's gifts. How to accept some things and adapt some things and reject some things. And let's be honest, it's easy on the extreme ends. But we've got to find a way to enjoy good food and beautiful sunsets. Rejecting heroin and the illegitimate marriages. We've got to find a way not only to navigate the extreme ends, but to navigate the broad gray middle. And for that, we need two things that I've run out of time to talk about. Scripture in community, of, in the community of Christ. They help us become wise people who can navigate the broad gray middle area. Let's pray.